Thank you very much. Thank you to all who've contributed this morning, especially some beautiful music that's taken us to a lovely divine place. Now, I said last Sunday that um, part of our role as officers here and the officer team is to, is to teach, pastor, preach and teach. But uh, there is also an important role, I think, that we have in this day and age, and that is about unlearning. When you've grown up in a Christian home or a Salvation Army home, I mean, you know what I mean, the same thing. But I um, said that really, really badly. When you've grown up in a Christian home, uh, there are certain things that you've been brought up with, stories and, and uh, uh, accounts, theologies that we've all grown up with and that perhaps we could do well to review sometimes through our spiritual journey. That is very important. It's the same as Salvation Army uh, uh, ways of doing things and mission and, and, uh, and discipleship and all these things. We have to start to unlearn some things uh, in order that we can uh, learn where, where we can go in today's world. So this morning is, I, I hope that you will take this in the loving spirit in which it is intended. Um, Jesus and Satan. Now, this is part of my own study, part of my own research, particularly in the last three or four weeks that I've been doing for this. Um, I'm also referring to Karl Barth, who's probably the leading theologian of the last century, mainstream theologian, Swiss man. Uh, N.T. Wright, who is more contemporary today, we often quote him, as you know. Because when you speak on such a subject as this, you want to be sure that you're preaching what the Scripture actually means and not what you think it means. You want to look really deeply into this uh, and not guesswork, because there's a lot of guesswork when you come to talk about Satan. An awful lot of guesswork. C.S. Lewis made a famous remark at the beginning of the Screwtape Letters. Um, he wrote this. The average person has two equal and opposite reactions when faced with demons and devils. Either they're tempted to say that this is all a bunch of nonsense and we can't believe in them, or they take a very unhealthy interest in them. <laughs> so from, from one wing to, to the other. And he goes on to say rightly, that neither of those is the right approach. We've all seen those showbiz preachers shouting, Satan, he's going to get you. Satan, he's going to bind you. Satan's going to loose his army of demons on you. Satan, he's just around the corner waiting for you. I'm all for deliverance. I'm all for healing. But true deliverance for me does not consist of cold promises, a shove to the ground, religious sound bites from a man in a sharp suit yelling at a paying audience. So what is this all about? Who or what is this Satan figure and within a deep spiritual context? In the Western world, we've often tended to dismiss as either non-existent or irrelevant things that we don't understand, or we've spoken in a very shallow way about them. 
But in this context, we cannot dismiss the fact that there are invisible forces in the world. And whatever language you might use for these forces, you have to know what you're talking about and know what Scripture is saying. In our Bible reading, we've got to remember that because they saw him casting out evil spirits and demons, the Pharisees turned it back on Jesus and they said, he is possessed by Satan. The first important thing to know this morning is that the main title for Satan was always this, the accuser or the opposer. Satan was always the accuser or the opposer. Those are his purposes. So when that showbiz preacher shouts, Satan's going to bind you, he is giving Satan a personality and an action. He is personifying Satan. And Satan's personality is often mischief-making. Whatever else it isn't, it is constant evil. But we need to take this on board. Satan, as the personified force of evil, is not important. It is wrong to think of Satan as personal in the same way that we think of God as a personal God. When describing Satan, the great contemporary scholar N.T. Wright uses the term subpersonal. By using that term, it's a way of refusing to give to Satan the full dignity of personhood. He does not even name it Satan, but he calls it the Satan. Wright does not dignify this power with a personality. Uh, the only other person in this hall this morning who has a copy of my notes is Penny. Penny, if you just look at my notes, when I write the word Satan, what do you notice? Thank you. Perfect. Lowercase. I did that on purpose in there. It's uppercase there. I perhaps made a mistake. But in my, I, I try and be quite concise in my, in my notes and accurate. So I've written Satan lowercase in order to take this sermon through without dignifying Satan with personality. Now, as I've already hinted, this does not mean that there isn't a force that is absolutely contrary to every expression of the holy life. There is. There is an opposer of goodness. And sometimes we perceive this in some people. You know how sometimes we sense in a person or in a group there's something that's empty or dark. We feel a disquiet and we feel concerned and we know something is wrong. But how do we know what that actually is? Some people would say it's demon possession or it's evil. Some 400 years before Christ, the great medical physician Hippocrates saw no place for demons. He said that people labelled as demoniac suffered from, and I quote, 
abnormal movements of juices in the head. Abnormal movements of juices in the head. So, we still haven't quite got there. Who or what is Satan, this opposer, this accuser? This is where we get to the real heart of it. Because for this I go to the great Christian academic scholar, theologian, Karl Barth. This is just a few of books that Karl Barth has written. This is all in one series. This is called Church Dogmatics. There's around three million words in these books. This is not something you read before you go to bed, really. There's a lot of books. They're all in a theological order. Um, it cost about 200 quid. I had them flown from America a few number of years ago. So if you, if you look at any one of these books, oh, that's the index. I don't want to look at that one. You look at any one of these books and you see how it's written. Tiny, tiny writing all the way through. Sometimes it's smaller than that. Tiny writing. So what good is all of this? You know, sometimes when the Lord gives us a theme to speak on a Sunday, I go to this uh, set, this volume, this library of books, and I go to the index and I look up the subject or I look up the scripture. And then I'll find it where it shows me where to go in all these myriads of pages. Shows me where to go. And um, I find a little hook sometimes in Bart just to then go and research further. Sometimes I find nothing, but sometimes I find a little hook. Now, there's 14 books here. And in these 14 books, there is barely a mention of Satan. Barely a mention of Satan. Except when I come to this book, What is the origin and nature of the devil and demons? The only possible answer, he says, having gone through a lot of pages of theology, the only possible answer is that their origin and nature lie in nothingness. Now, there's a quote. The abyss and darkness and horror of evil as the supremely present background of human existence, the invisible yet supremely visible and audible and palpable dominion of nothingness over humankind, which in its unity can be called the devil or Satan. That's what he says. He says Satan is not a personified force. Satan is nothingness. Now this makes a lot of sense if you read it, if you work it through, which I've tried to do. Satan is the state of absolute nothingness. If Satan is nothingness and nothingness has no persona, isn't it more frightening? There is nothing now to visualize. The danger is not there visibly, it's invisible. It's a spiritual darkness. Nothingness means no filters. 
don't care. Nothingness means chaos and riot. What does the scripture say about the universe in Genesis before the Spirit of God moved on the waters? Chaos. And chaos, when there's nothingness, can take control of hearts and minds and thinking. And it can eventually destruct. These might be termed the powers of nothingness, a real abyss of darkness. And when there is nothing for you to hold on to, so the darkness increases in importance. So when you think of Satan like this, it makes Dante's visions, he's got a lot to answer for with his artwork, but it makes Dante's visions and all of our thinking of this little horned devil with cloven feet forked tail and the burning spear, quite irrelevant, almost ridiculous. There is no such thing. Good art, terrible theology. Ask any preacher who declares Satan this and Satan that and Satan's going to bind you. Say, well, how? how? What, what do you mean by that? Go, go more deeply into it. Don't just give, this, don't just give these words out. And they'll probably have to think long and hard before eventually guessing. And they'll probably guess at something like this coming on the screen now. Those are traditional ideas, traditional pictures of Satan. So let's find a biblical example to test this out. In Matthew 4, we're told that Jesus was tempted by the devil, by Satan. It says that in Matthew 4. The Holy Spirit has guided Jesus into the desert to no man's land. He is alone. And now, the human part of him is tempted. He's alone. There are no filters. He thinks whatever he thinks, if you like. He goes down to that place of hell, if you like. Uh, we'll just have those verses up. Um, there you are. There's the word devil in verses 3 and 5. And on the next page, verse 8. The devil came to him and took him. When there's no filter, you can think. You can do anything. But the writer does not give that devil a personality. He doesn't say the devil jumped him, devil took him by the hand, devil got inside of him, devil got in his food and went inside when he ate, which is what some of them believed in those days. Jesus is totally alone except that he's being tempted by the thoughts that come when a person has no guiding principles, foundations, or point of moral or spiritual reference. That's where Jesus is. He calls to mind, however, Scripture to counter those temptations which have no foundation or take any responsibility for the outcome of consequences that they cause. Now, verse 10 is key. Jesus says, get out of here, Satan. He says the word. The scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and only him. He names this nothingness because the scriptures tell the truth. The scriptures are something, not nothing. The scriptures met the thoughts that the accuser put in the mind of Christ. 
The scriptures pointed him to worship God, the light, the one the psalmist called our rock and our salvation. Likewise, when Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, get thee behind me, Satan, the the literal translation is go away offense. Go away offense. He's not talking to Peter as, he's not dignifying Satan with a personality. So he can't say to Peter, you are Satan. But it is the nothingness that has caused the doubt in Peter that he addresses. I hope this is all right with you. It is not a word which recognizes personality. It's the same in the desert when he's tempted. So this is where we come to personal application this morning. What is nothingness? It's essentially life without God in Christ. And this really helps us when we look at Mark chapter 3. The Pharisees say that Jesus is possessed by Satan, and I think Jesus is hurt by that. Yet isn't the nature of Satan to accuse and accuse wrongfully? What does this say about the Pharisees who accuse? Empty? nothingness, darkness, they prove that they were people living out of the light. And then the reading says that with nothing at the center, a family will destroy itself through argument. Where nothing is at the center, something takes its place that is not holy. That can affect one member of the family or two or all. Founded on chaos, no filter, so ego and self-ambition take over. That's nothingness. By his spirit and by his love, which has its source and substance, so Jesus is the alternative. You see, when in our readings Jesus calls out the name of Satan, what he's doing is what he often did when he healed people. He assumed their belief. He assumed their understanding in order that it might go in and they might receive that particular hearing. It made the point understandable. And he did it a lot. It was the only way his hearers at the time could receive that. So the reality of Satan is not a little creature with horns and a tail that's the stuff of fantasy, but it's a life which tries to distance itself from God, which is a frightening reality in our world today. We've all sensed in some people an emptiness, some groups of people, shallow darkness. Something is not right. It's wrong. There are many people who through personal sin have come to accept and live a life without seeming hope, without an approach to light. And that's very distressing to see. So for us, our lesson must be to keep close to Christ, to protect and preserve our spirit, to fill our hearts and minds with the good things of God. Do not allow the darkness of nothingness to occupy your heart at the expense of Christ's light. Because if you do, you'll be experiencing some kind of hell. And my friends, that's a subject for another time of unlearning. Hell.
we have the cross. And Christ's resurrection reveals the clash between the chaos and the disruptive nature of nothingness and the hope of glorious, positive living. This afternoon in our meeting, we're going to see that Advent is coming. God inspires a new creation from nothing. Every Advent, we consider the joy of the light coming into the darkness, heaven coming to earth, something that came where nothing was. In John's Gospel, Jesus speaks about those who live in darkness who need his light. Darkness and nothingness are opposers of light. And Jesus gets to the root of any sense we may have of emptiness. So we are called not just to understand the problem of evil, not just to understand the justice of God, but also to be a part of the solution to it. We're called to live between the cross and resurrection on the one hand and the new world on the other. We're called to bring the two together in prayer, in holiness, through scripture, which determines how we live in our present world right where we are. Why? Because that's what Jesus did when he fought temptation in the desert. And these are disciplines which will bind nothingness because they are founded on the rock, in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I feel like I've bamboozled you a bit. Take it on, think on it. I don't know whether it's going on iCloud at any point. Please come back, SoundCloud, please come back if uh, you want to say any more. Thing is this, whenever you sense a nothingness, emptiness, it is effectively a distance from God. Whenever you see it in somebody, or you sense it in the way someone's speaking, or you sense it in your world, or in your neighborhood, or in your work, wherever it is, there is a distance from God. There is not a little man jumping on people's shoulders and making them act like that. It's deeper. It's more invisible. It can be more frightening but it is the dark. The answer is always found in the light of the cross of Christ. Amen. We're going to sing together before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. And this puts everything in context really for us. And if it is that you want to come kneel at this place of prayer this morning and know the light more fully, refuse the dark more fully, then as we sing these uh, three verses, please feel free to do so. <laughs>